0: Well, if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look this morning at Hebrews 11, verse 7. You'll find that on page 1007. And if the sevens are confusing you, I'll say that again. We're looking at Hebrews eleven seven on page 1007. Thankfully, it wasn't page 1177. So now I've probably confused you. Page 1007 in your church Bible, we're looking at Hebrews 11, verse 7. And before we do, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the reading and the preaching and the receiving and keeping of his word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we bow in our hearts before you and ask that from heaven you would open the floodgates and that you would pour out mercy and grace on us, even as we look at this passage so full and so rich and so deep and sobering. We pray that you would build us up in Christ, that you would grant us the grace and the faith to flee to him and to find refuge and salvation in him. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted and magnified in in the preaching of your word. We pray that your voice as of the voice of the good shepherd would be heard and that we as your sheep would hear you and would follow you and would live because of you. Lord Jesus, we plead with you. We come to you as children who have nothing begging for bread. We pray that you would feed us with the bread of heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, when I was 12 years old, we moved from Philadelphia to St. Simons Island, Georgia, which opened up not only a whole litany of cultural experiences that I was not prepared for, but it also opened up for me a whole litany of geographical phenomenon I was not prepared for, and one of those things is hurricanes. I, in Philadelphia, never really talked about hurricanes, didn't feel like we had to worry about it. We had an earthquake every now and then, a little... Uh, insignificant earthquake, and no sooner had we moved to St. Simon's Island in 1989, within a matter of months, Hurricane Hugo was racing up the coast and was coming as dangerously close to hitting St. Simon's Island and Richmond Hill as any hurricane in any recent history has come. And I'll never forget, as a 12-year-old boy, that my dad uh, rushed to pack up all of uh, our well, we didn't have many, valuable possessions, and to take up anything if it was left in the house on the floor and put them on places of elevation and to take every precaution necessary. And so he did with every subsequent threat of a hurricane when I lived on St. Simon's Island. And I'll never forget that my sister and I, responded to my dad's preparations and concerns with disrespect and disdain. I'm sure there was some eye rolling, some sighing. Why are we doing this? Our friends aren't doing this. Our neighbors aren't doing this. And we would get in the car with my dad and we would go several hours inland just in case the hurricane hit. And I look back on that and I think, well, you know, my dad had meteorological, I can't even say that, Um, heads up on the hurricane. He foresaw that the hurricane was coming. He heard about what it took for preparations. And so there was something of a necessary and right response on his part. And yet we saw that as insignificant and even foolish in how my dad responded. I think that's a little bit helpful when we come to this passage of scripture, because Noah, who was Uh, not a fictional being who was a real person who lived in time and space who was called by God to be the head of a new humanity after the flood didn't have any kind of heads up except the word of God about something that had never happened and no one had ever experienced and by faith he did what was necessary to prepare himself and his family for the salvation that they inevitably experienced because by faith he obeyed God, he prepared himself, he trusted God, and he was saved because of that faith and that preparation. And notice that as we've been in the series in Hebrews and we've We've seen that one of the perennial issues for first century churches and and here with this church is that they were in danger of going away from Christ because they didn't want the reproach of the world. They didn't want the mocking. They didn't want the scorn. They wanted to be accepted. They feared man. And what they needed more than anything was perseverance in faith. They needed the perseverance of faith. That's a common theme running through the book of Hebrews. And... The writer has already given us two examples here in chapter 11 of of saints who persevered from the beginning. Abel was one who persevered unto his own bloodshed by his brother, by worshiping God the way God wanted to be worshipped, by bringing the sacrifice God wanted. And then Enoch, by faith, walked with God. And we saw last week that he was not. He was taken and he foreshadowed the bodily resurrection. He, in that way, showed that there was hope for those that have faith, that their faith was not futile, that the life of faith paid off because ultimately it would end up in resurrection glory as it did for Enoch. Now the writer moves to Noah, and it's fitting that he moves to Noah because on a number, number of levels, when you go back to Genesis chapter 5, there are these parallels in the language used both about Abel and Enoch, And Noah, and one of those parallels between Enoch and Noah is that he walked with God. We saw that last week, that Enoch is said twice to have walked with God. Noah also is said to have walked with God. His life was marked by faithful living and devotion to God, believing the promises of God, trusting him for redemption. We see when we look at him even coming off of the ark, that he's sacrificing. He doesn't even trust in that temporal deliverance. He is a man who knows deeply that he needs redemption, and his whole life is marked out as a life of faith and trust and dependence on God. And this man is so great that in the book of Ezekiel, God will list three men from Old Testament history as saying they functionally are the greatest examples of faith, Noah, Daniel, and Job. And Daniel is marked out in a very special way. Now, it's also interesting to note that while God took Enoch away from the wicked world, he took the wicked world away from Noah. It's a very interesting parallel. Um, We saw last week that God took Enoch away from seeing more of the violence and the corruption, more of the evil in the world. We talked about how the believer's heart ought to find this world very dissatisfying, very distasteful, and disturbing, the evil and the fallenness of this world, and God took Enoch out. This week, we see that God took the wickedness out of the world and left Noah. He left Noah. He dealt with the situation in a different way for a different purpose in redemptive history. This morning, we want to see several things. First, we want to consider Noah's faith, and then we want to consider Noah's motivation of faith. And then finally, we want to consider Noah's reward of faith. Notice there in verse 7, we're told, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning yet, events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. I want to say this off the bat. If, if we just looked at what Noah did, we just looked at what Noah did, and we focused on the flood and the ark, and that's all we focused on, and we talked about him... In his doing, it would do you a great disservice. The writer of Hebrews doesn't do that. The writer of Hebrews starts this verse by saying, by faith. And then notice he ends the verse by saying, by faith. And so what the focus is, is what's going on in Noah's heart. What was going on? Not so much what was going on with Noah's actions. Obviously, that's relevant. That's going to play into things. But what was going on in Noah's heart? And what the writer of Hebrews says is what was going in Noah's heart, going on in Noah's heart, is exactly what was going on in every other saint's heart. He was trusting God. And I would argue that his whole life, even in the mundane details, was a life of faith. Noah was anything but a Sunday-only Christian. I promise you that. Noah was a man of faith in plowing and reaping and in everything that he set his hand to do. He trusted God. He wanted God to be glorified. He knew he needed God's redemption. He knew he needed to be delivered from his sin nature exactly like Enoch, exactly like Abel, exactly like every other saint who's ever lived. I want to read a quote to you by Charles Spurgeon, really great quote. He said, by faith, Noah did everything he did before he entered the ark. This is an important observation, though it may appear a very simple one. I could not omit it, for I feel that a practical workday faith is what we most of all need. Men think that they need faith in building a temple, but faith is also needed in building a haystack. We need faith for plowing, for buying, for selling, for working, quite as much as for praying, for singing, and preaching. We want faith on the market as well as in the prayer meeting. We wish everywhere to please God, and we cannot do it anywhere unless we have unfeigned faith in him. The Lord teach us to have faith seven days a week. I think that the first thing we have to say before we rush into the flood narrative and the building of the ark is that Noah had faith. Noah had that faith because God had been gracious to him. He was a token of God's mercy and grace. On one hand, Noah was no better than anybody else that got destroyed in the flood, and I know that because the offer of mercy was to everyone. We're we're told in 2 Peter, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And that means whether in the building of the ark over the 120 years, or whether verbally Noah was telling men of God's judgment, and in telling them of his judgment, he was telling them there's a way of deliverance. If they would turn, they could have been saved. In the same way, Noah's offering a sacrifice. Noah was saying he was no better than the men and women and boys and girls who perished in the flood. And so Noah had faith because God was gracious. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the language of Genesis. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He heard of God's judgments. He heard of God's mercy. He found grace from God, and he lived a life of faith. And I think that what Spurgeon said 160 years ago, is as true today and will be as true in a thousand years from now if Jesus doesn't come, that what we need more than anything is an everyday, workday faith, a a seven-day-a-week faith, so that if people look at you, they say, that's a man, that's a woman who is trusting God and walking by faith. I um, want to read to you a quote. Sinclair Ferguson said, most people will die with either the faith or the unbelief with which they have lived. Most people will die with either the faith or the unbelief with which they had lived. That means Noah didn't start believing the day it started raining. And all the men and women on the earth, however many there were, who were destroyed in the flood didn't believe even the day it started raining. What it means is that most people will generally either live or die with, will live and die with the faith or the unbelief that they live with now. And so the call to us this morning, as it is, as we look at Noah, is, is my life marked by faith? Am I living a -a seven-day-a-week faith, or am I a Sunday-only Christian? Again, am I compartmentalizing my faith? Am I saying, well, yeah, I'll go over here, but then over here, I'll live however I want, and I won't have any thought of God, and I don't care about pleasing God, and I have no conviction of sin in these areas, and I don't tell anybody about Jesus, and I'm really ashamed to be a Christian, but here, I'll go to church on Sunday. And I think... All of these cameos, and especially Noah, stand out. Noah Noah lived many hundreds of years a a seven-day-a-week faith, a a workday faith. Now, when the writer of Hebrews tells us about faith, we've seen over the study that it's always a response to God's word. It's not a mystical thing. It's not a, oh, I have a sense of God, and so... I'm a spiritual person, but that it's always a response to what God is said. And God had revealed things to Noah. Again, Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. God had somehow, in a special way, verbally revealed things to Noah, as he had done to Adam, as he had done to Abel, as he had done to Seth, as he had done all the way up till Moses started inscripturating God's revelation, that God had revealed things to Noah, And Noah received that word and he believed it and he acted on it even though he didn't see any evidence of it. There was no empirical evidence. Let me say this. While we love science and we ought to give ourselves to science, faith does not live and breathe on empirical evidence. In all likelihood before the flood, from the biblical record, we could almost um, come to the conclusion that it had never rained on the earth. Mist went up from the ground when Genesis said it had not rained, that a lot of theologians believe this is the first time it rained. Now, if you're a scientific type and you say, well, how could that be? Well, the atmosphere would have been very different before a worldwide flood and after a worldwide flood. I'll say that first of all. Secondly, there's no reason for anyone to have thought that God would flood the world entirely so that the text of Genesis says that it's so great that the waters went up over the highest mountains. No one had ever experienced anything like this, and yet Noah received God's word of warning, and he walked by faith. And I think it's interesting that when we talk about Noah's faith, the thing that's highlighted here is that it's a faith in the face of, of God's warnings of judgment. Now, this is a difficult subject because it would be very easy to view Noah like the angry homeless guy on a city street with a repent or perish sign. That's not how you should view Noah. And it would be very easy to look at the Genesis narrative because the inevitable outcome is judgment. And it'd be very easy to say, judgment, 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 all this judgment. I don't like hearing about judgment. But I'll say this, that the Bible everywhere teaches judgment and salvation. Judgment is inexplicably linked to salvation. It is a residue of salvation. Salvation comes through judgment. Your salvation and my salvation comes from the judgment of Jesus at Calvary. There is no salvation without judgment. And I'll say this this morning. There's no faith in God's promises of salvation unless you have faith in his warnings and threats of judgment. That's what Hebrews 11:7 is saying. If you do not believe the righteous judgments of God, you do not believe the holy, precious promises of God for salvation. Because the two are two sides of the same coin. And here in, in Hebrews 11, in a chapter where the promise and the hope of Entering into God's glory is set out in front of all these saints in the Old Testament. We have this example of this massive place of judgment in redemptive history. And what we're told is that Noah, being warned of things not yet seen, believed. God said, 120 years, and I'm wiping this place out. Build a boat. And Noah had no empirical reason to do that. It, but it's the most foolish thing in the world to build a boat in the desert actually a man hanging on a cross is more foolish man hanging on a cross to save the world is more foolish than a man building a boat in a desert he had no reason rationally to do what he did except God had spoken and rationally it's right to believe God and to believe God's warnings and he saw the world around him and he saw the wickedness of the world and we know in our hearts the justice has to be rendered we know in our hearts there's a, a deep sense of justice in the hearts of everybody even the most unjust people somehow suddenly their sense of justice appears in this event or that event suddenly the sense of justice returns Noah saw the wickedness of the world, the violence of the world, the persecution of the godly in the world. No one knew that the world deserved judgment. No one knew he deserved judgment. God said, Noah, I will save you, though I am going to judge the world. Build an ark for yourself and your family. And so his faith came as a response to the warnings. And his faith came in the face of the challenges of the day in which he lived. I can't even imagine how hard it would have been. We talked about this with Enoch last week. Now here's Noah. Building a boat, as I told you earlier, 60 times the size of this room we're in right now, three stories high, 120 years spending his time, his resources, energies, giving his life to obey God by faith to do that, and the reproach he probably got from every corner of humanity on the earth at that time. I I wonder how you would feel if you had an entire year of reproach, day after day after day for Jesus. 120 years Noah was reproached by the world around him while he walked by faith in the word of God. And he had no one to set a godly example before him. He didn't have this example, as we said before, of a great church history full of saints that trusted God before him. He was doing it alone, as it were. Notice um, that Noah is in a very real sense condemning the world when he builds this boat he is essentially saying to the world around him there is one way of salvation listen very carefully Noah is saying to the world around him there is one way of salvation this is the only way of God's salvation yes it is a foolish way of salvation and yes you may not understand it but this is what God has said unless you're in the ark you will perish and in that sense Noah was casting condemnation and judgment on a world that hated God and had turned from God So it is with us when God says Jesus is the only way of salvation and only those that are in Jesus Christ will be saved and the natural man hears that and he hates it and despises it in his heart but it doesn't change the fact that it's the only way of salvation and God shut the door on the ark and nobody else could get in. And when God shut the door that was it. Never forget the time my dad told me a story. He was he was um, witnessing to one of our, our relatives, very close relative, and um, my, our relative said to him, I don't want to hear this anymore. And my dad said, you know, there was a day when men didn't want to hear what God said. And he said, but do you know who wanted to hear? And our relative said, no, who? And he said, the animals. And they went into the ark And then God shut the door, and only those within the ark were redeemed. If you are the kind of person that doesn't want to hear, A, let that be a reproach to you that animals listen to God over men, and that's the account of the flood. And number two, the ark was the only way and means of salvation, and Jesus Christ is the only way and means of salvation. And that there's a day coming when Jesus says in his parable that the door is shut and the wedding guests are gathered inside and no one else can get in. There's almost parallel language in a few of our Lord Jesus' parables. The door was shut, the wedding is ready, everyone else is excluded. The exclusivity of Jesus is a very, very, very difficult thing for even some believers to swallow, and yet as the biblical fact and truth, the necessity of your salvation depends on whether or not you believe that that is the only way of salvation. Now notice that what the writer of Hebrews also does here, very interestingly, is that he, in a sense, intimates the costliness, what Noah's faith cost him. Um, I don't even think you could begin to calculate what it cost Noah to build the ark. The cost of materials. Some people surmise that some of the people that rejected him and scoffed him probably came and worked for him. That he probably hired people to work for him in order to get that massive ship built as he did. The, the skillfulness, the time needed, the energy, the resources. Noah would have given everything to do what God told him to do. And I think here's, here's the application to us, the big one. You're not called to build an ark. If I catch you trying to build a big boat in your backyard, other than for fishing, out in the river, we're going to talk. <laughs> you, you are not called to do what Noah did. But what you are called to do is you are called to count the cost. And that cost is, and I think it's interesting in this book, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, exhorting one another so much more while well it's called today giving of your first fruits to God, giving of your time and your prayer and your energy, not in order that God will save you, but because you've been saved by God and you understand that in all the use of God's appointed means, that is how inevitably we will be saved. The Bible talks of salvation in three tenses. I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. And until we reach the will be, have been in glory... That means the rest of our life is to be spent in costly commitment to Jesus Christ, devotion to him, attendance at any regularly attended meeting where the means of grace are taught so that you can grow and your soul can thrive and that you know that you are safely within Jesus Christ, the greater ark. So that you know that you are safe within until that door is shut and that you know that you have trusted God and are trusting him. You know, I prayed this week and and i was surprised i've told you in the past i've had several friends or acquaintances ministers in this denomination and others like it walk away from christ and i started praying for them this week and i ended up praying for 8 or 9 men who have been significant parts of my life in the last 10 years who all knew more theology than all of you and they've all walked away for a woman or some other sin they've all walked away from jesus they've all left the ark they've left the church They've walked away from their commitment, their professions of faith. Some of them have embraced false teachings. Some of them have become secular hedonist. And if you don't think that would happen to us, you are so foolish if you don't think that could happen to you. And so Noah, by faith, being warned by God about events yet unseen, and we have the judgment day in front of us. He was moved with godly fear, and by faith, he prepared an ark. He did what God told him to do. And God has told us lots of what we are to do. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't forsake the assembly. Praying for all the saints. Using your worldly goods to minister to the household of faith and to those outside in need on and on and on, that God has said, this is what a person of faith does. This is what a person of faith looks like. And so we see that Noah was a man of faith. Secondly, we see that Noah Noah's faith led to the right motivation. Notice in verse, the second part of verse 7, it says, in godly fear. In godly fear. What was going on in Noah's heart? What motivated Noah? Verse what didn't motivate the world around him? Um, Jesus actually tells us a little bit about the world around him. I don't know if y'all are familiar with this, but Jesus actually elaborates on what was going on in the world around Noah, and he said, they ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage. Now, last time I checked, nothing sinful in itself about eating or drinking, nothing sinful in and of itself about marrying and given in marriage, heterosexually. Last time I checked the scriptures, that's it. But there's everything wrong with those things if you do not have a heart of faith motivated by godly fear, reverence, like a son for his father honoring the Lord, looking to him, living for him, trusting him, believing his word, trembling at his warnings, rejoicing in his promises, obeying him by faith. If, if godly fear is not motivating you, then there's everything wrong with doing those things sort of idiophora, things indifferent. Is everything wrong with it? Because your motivation is selfishness. The world was eating, drinking, marrying, and giving a marriage selfishly. Noah was building an ark because he was moved by godly fear. Noah's, Noah had a reverence and a love and a respect for God. He understood his holiness. He understood his justice. He understood his graciousness. Noah understood that God was creator and that he was a creature, Noah understood that God was redeemer and he was a sinner. Noah understood and believed those things and he was motivated by a desire to honor God. Not out of servile fear, not out of, I don't want to just perish in the flood so I'm going to do this begrudgingly. He loved God. He had a heart of reverence. Turn back to Hebrews 5. I want to show you somebody else in this book that is said to have had a heart of godly fear. Notice notice verse 7, Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his same phrase, godly fear. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory himself, God manifest in the flesh was motivated everywhere and especially as he headed to the cross in the garden of gethsemane he was motivated by godly fear the desire to please his father when when jesus looked into the cup and he knew he would drink the cup of god's wrath and he saw how terrible the forsakenness and the abandonment the loss of fellowship he would have under the wrath of god for us and he he was in a sense taken back by that and said father if it's possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not my will but your will be done he was praying with godly fear even though he didn't want the loss of fellowship with his father it's unthinkable that a sinless man could have prayed anything other than that to pray oh my father let's break fellowship and let let's let's not have perfect harmony and fellowship as we've had for all eternity at that moment not my will, but yours be done, was a prayer of godly fear that God would be honored and loved and respected for who he is and what he wants. And so Noah, we're told in Hebrews eleven seven, was moved with godly fear. Now, let me say this just briefly. How does that get cultivated in your heart? Because I think that's the million-dollar question. Well, that gets cultivated by, by going to the scriptures, which in Psalm 19 are called the fear of the Lord. It's the only place in the scriptures, but David says the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and he's talking about the Bible. And so the fear of God gets cultivated in our hearts as we put ourselves into the scriptures that are given that name, the fear of God. The reverence, the awe, the respect, the belief, the love, the honor that God is due that we give to him is cultivated and nurtured in us and built up in us as we put ourselves under his word. And, and ask him to fill us with it. It's that simple. Really, it's not very difficult. You don't have to search far and wide. You have to search deep in the scriptures. Noah was motivated by godly fear. Noah prepared for the judgment to come. And then finally, we see the outcome of Noah's faith. Notice that the writer tells us he constructed an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness of faith. Three things quickly. Noah's faith affected others. Not all of Noah's sons were saved spiritually, eternally. One of them was cursed. Ham is cursed. Later on, we know that. But in this typical redemption in the ark, which is a type of the eternal redemption, it's a picture of... Prophecy. In that salvation, Noah's family was saved with him. That means that your faith and my faith have ramifications for others and not just for ourselves. Faith is not a private thing, faith is a public thing and it has public effects and it has effects on your household. And I think it's right that in Scripture we start with our households and we say, How am I living a life of faith in which I am seeking the salvation of my family? If you are not concerned for the salvation of your family, there's something terribly wrong. I think one of the things that weighs me down more often than not is, am I being a faithful dad to the children God has entrusted to me? They're his children. My wife is a daughter of the king. She's only on loan to me. My children are only on loan to me. Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household. You see, you see this in Lot, I think. Interestingly, Lot goes to his um, daughters and his sons-in-laws and he, he says, God's going to destroy the city. And, and the scripture says his sons-in-law, they thought that he was speaking a foolish thing. And yet Lot wanted to see the salvation of his family. Now, at the end of the day, Every one of you are going to stand before God on Judgment Day and give an account of what you did and whether you have saving faith. My faith will not save you on Judgment Day. Your faith will not save your husband, wives, or wives, men. God requires personal faith, and yet I think it's telling that God is such a God of covenant that God works in the life of Noah, in the faith of Noah, and his family benefits. And, and here's the amazing thing. If you think this is a fictional story, you may not like this, and I'm sorry. You're sitting here today because Noah walked by faith. The whole world, the table of nations, came from Noah and his three sons. That's it. There were no pre-Adamic hominids you came from. You came from Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You were in his loins on the ark. The rain coming down right now with which God has promised never to flood the earth again as he did, is not flooding this world as he did, because God promised Noah that he wouldn't do that again. The Noahic covenant has everything to do with you, and had Noah not obeyed God, no one would have been saved. And even more remarkable, even more remarkable, is not that you came from Noah, but that Noah is in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Redeemer was in the loins of Noah on the ark. And the salvation that that salvation typified was accomplished through the Redeemer and in part because Noah believed. That's remarkable. That's absolutely remarkable. The wisdom of God would so order all things that not only creation would be preserved in the ark, but that the Redeemer would be preserved in the ark. Now let me just point out two other things briefly. The outcome he condemned the world um, I don't think that Noah's intention was to preach judgment at everybody because he delighted in preaching judgment I think there's a danger I do sense that some Christians today who are very conservative almost enjoy preaching against things and speaking against things there should never be an enjoyment in that there should be a faithfulness in that there should never be an enjoyment in that there should be tears and sobriety and trembling in the fact that there is a judgment day coming and that any that are not in Christ will perish. And yet, God offered mercy, didn't he? He offered mercy through Noah. That's a big ark. I don't know how many people lived on the earth then, not seven billion, like today. Much, 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 much smaller number of people. How many of them could have fit on that ark had they listened? But because they didn't, What Noah did stood as a testimony against the unbelief and the condemnation that the world is under. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And then he says, he who does not believe is condemned already. So already condemned. Noah moved with godly fear, built an ark, saved his family, condemned the world, and then finally became the heir of the righteousness of faith. The end result of all this The end result of all of this is that you and I become heirs of the righteousness of faith, that we get glory, that by holding fast to Jesus Christ, one day we'll be through the wanderings of this world and the burdens of all the wickedness of the world and the sin that so easily weighs us down, and we'll be free from that and we'll be in glory and we'll have the reward of our faith. And that's the point is that Noah waited long. Noah had a very long and tiring and troublesome life and yet Noah became heir of the righteousness of faith and that means Noah will never ever 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 have to do anything like he did back then and if you're in Christ and you're fighting the good fight of faith and you're giving yourself to an outworked life of faith in Jesus Christ and you're giving yourself to a diligent means of God's preservation in your life when you get to glory it's going to be peace and rest You're never going to have the struggles and the trials and the tears and the discouragements. There's not going to be any more reproach. Nobody's going to hate you for loving God and loving Jesus. You're going to have everlasting joy and peace, safety. Interesting, I'll close with this. God put a rainbow in the sky. Um to be a reminder to him, though he doesn't need a reminder, to assure to us the steadfastness of his promise, uh, put a rainbow in the sky that he would never again destroy the earth as he had done, ultimately because the Redeemer had to come and cure the hearts of men. And in glory, we're told in the book of Revelation that there's a rainbow around the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is that the mercy that Noah experienced there, which was a foretaste of everlasting mercy, is the everlasting mercy that you'll have in the presence of Jesus, who has a rainbow around him, covenant mercy, steadfast love, the promise of salvation. Listen, I know that the Noaic account has massive judgment around it. And you need to take that seriously. And you need to take the judgment day seriously because all of us are gonna stand before God But the point of this sermon is that you would escape by faith in Jesus. That like Noah, you would rise above the waves of God's wrath by hiding in the only one who could take that wrath and the beating of that wrath upon himself at the cross so that you would be safe in him. This is what the Apostle Paul says. I'm closing with this. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Your life reflect the um, perseverance, the obedience, the motivation of Noah because you're in Christ Jesus. If you are, you're in the ark. You're safe. If you're not, there's time, flee. I mean, God is patient, but one day the door will shut. One day the Lord will shut the door. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Lord, the warnings of your word are weighty and sobering and at times terrifying, and we pray that you would give us the grace and the faith to believe that you are the just and the holy God who must punish sin and unrighteousness, who has promised a day of making every wrong right, And a day when you will judge the thoughts and intents of the hearts of men and women. And we know that we are subject to your scrutiny as our maker and creator. And we know the greatness of our sins and the guilt and shame of our sin. And so we are thankful for the Lord Jesus taking the wrath that we deserve on himself. Being overwhelmed in the floodwaters of your wrath. His death being a baptism like the flood. In the days of Noah, and we pray, oh God, that you would hide us safely in Christ, that you would draw each one in this room to your son today afresh, that this would not be something we said we did when we were 12 or 15 or 20. We pray, Father, that you would hide us in Christ today, that you would surround us with your favor, that you would give us a strong, persevering faith in him who all of our safety and satisfaction and rest is found. We pray these things in his name. Amen.